the expiration date of IoT device security, why cybersecurity spend is so far downstream, and could banks be custodians of identities? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. If your home is anything like mine, there's probably been a steady creep of internet-connected devices throughout. What started with Alexa has now crept into light fittings, doorbells, and even my refrigerator. While the ability to know how many eggs I have at any given time is fairly useful, one does start to wonder about the security of these devices, and just how long that security might in fact be up to date. In a report by ISMG's Managing Editor of Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk, he explores just how long connected devices are being supported and the potential risks to security and privacy as these unpatched devices permeate our lives. Here he is. If you've managed to kit out your home with smart devices and appliances that work properly, you probably think that you're set for a forward-looking future. But there are no regulations around how long manufacturers must provide security updates, which could mean a smart device becomes a risk. The UK consumer watchdog and testing organization, which recently asked major smart appliance manufacturers how long software updates will be provided. The answer for most was the life of the product and one that begs more questions. While most countries have consumer protection regulations that could generally be applied to smart devices, there's not much specifically for IoT that's not voluntary. Also, devices such as washing machines and refrigerators have a potentially long lifespan. If a software component becomes vulnerable, the device could stop working due to a malicious attack. Or it could get roped into a botnet and used for misdeeds such as distributed denial of service attacks, as we saw with video cameras due to the Mirai botnet four years ago. Which asked a variety of manufacturers where they stood on this. That included Beko, BSH, which makes Bosch, Neff, and Siemens branded products, Hoover Candy, LG, Samsung, Mila, and Whirlpool, which makes the Indesit and Hotpoint brands. Most defer to saying a product will be supported through its lifetime. Samsung told which updates would be provided for a minimum of two years, while Mila was the most generous at 10 years. Crucially, which pointed out that none of the brands actually specified in written policies how long they would provide updates. That doesn't give consumers a lot of transparency nor leverage if something goes wrong. Brad Ree is CTO of the IOXT Alliance, which is a trade group dedicated to securing IoT devices. Ree says with connected devices, no regulator has yet made the leap to ensure that the software is supported through time. Right now, consumers really don't know how long the product supported. That's critical as well because smart devices cost a lot more than devices without software control features. Countries are moving to address the problems though. The US government has issued guidelines that recommend manufacturers tell consumers about security update policies and long-term support. The UK has a code of practice for manufacturers for consumer IoT and Australia is working on one. All of those schemes are voluntary, however. Ree says the IOXT Alliance recommends that manufacturers include an end-of-life policy with their products, the same kind of assurance that those companies would ask of their own suppliers. Brad Ree again. All manufacturers, right, anytime you have a critical component in your device, you always hold your supply chain to, right, you've you got to give me 12 months notice, 24 months notice before you discontinue a component. So what we said is if you as a manufacturer hold your suppliers to that, 
then you should be held to your customers for the same thing. Since the initiatives are voluntary, perhaps public pressure is the best way to get companies on board. Twitter isn't a bad start, as companies tend to pay attention to consistent flows of focused tweets, perhaps a hashtag, when IoT dies. And if you hear of a connected device that's still viable but is no longer receiving important security updates, please get in touch with me. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. IT security spend is unquestionably a big ticket item. But just what sort of return on an organization's investment do they get? In a recent interview with ISMG's Anna Delaney, Director of ISMG Productions, Greg Vandergas, Head of Information Security at the University of Salford, was asked why, when IC security spend is going up, there is so little return. Imagine a car factory where the parts are coming in, sheet metal is coming in, it's getting stamped into body shells, painted, all the bits are getting bolted together, and then the cars are completed on the assembly line and then pushed into the parking lot from the third floor, where they arrive mangled, smashed, and people uh, scurry around them, start moving them aside because more are coming. They determine what's broken, what parts are needed, what's the process to repair it, what tooling is needed, what's the best order in which to do things, how do we structure the work to handle, how do we scale it up, how do we hire more people, how do we train them with the right skills, what better tools can we get, should we implement a quality control framework or some kind of structure to make sure we don't miss anything and don't step all over each other. And next thing you know, you've got vendors proposing better tools, you've got thousands of people fixing all these things. Uh, It's all very regulated, it's very standard because we start imposing standards of how all this is done. Uh, But no one is taking a step back and saying, why don't we just make the cars come out the ground floor and you wouldn't have to do any of this. Why is spending going up with little return? Well, because we're we're addressing the problem far too far downstream. Uh, So if you're not fixing the root causes of the issue, you're just going to keep spending and you're you're resolving issues without ever stopping the flow of that issue. And you know, the more complex things get, the more, uh, the more things break. And there's actually a shift towards this, what I call the parking lot approach, or this reactive approach, as opposed to uh, protection and prevention. Because people say, well, prevention doesn't work. It's like, no, you've just never done it very well. And, and part of that is kind of a, a lack of engagement. Uh, we've never been very good at communicating. We've never really been able to influence business process and IT process. And the issues keep happening. And most IT professionals work in a SOC. They work in a security operations center full of computers and screens, completely removed from the business, having no idea what all the stuff actually is that's, that's coming onto them and where it's coming from. It's just tickets and incidents and handling them and closing them off. Um, and as long as we keep doing that, we're just gonna keep spending more money. And it's not addressing the root cause of the issues because it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. You can only address in a SOC what you've caught in the first place. So if you haven't had holistic business engagement and IT engagement, you know, it's, it's kind of like what's going into your seam if you have, or you're logging or whatever. If, if you're not aware of something, you're not going to have data on it. So you can't even react to it. So it's, it's an imperfect approach. It'll never catch everything. It doesn't fix causes upstream. And it's this perpetual cycle that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and I really think we need to address things further upstream and cause the issues that are, are addressed the issues that are causing all this. And that leads me to my second point, the skills gap. Now, yeah, we have literally in the world millions of open information security positions that we're trying to fill. 
but they're virtually all these parking lot rules. They're all responding to things, fixing things, you know, tickets, SOC analysts, incident responders, penetration testers, that kind of thing. If you go and look for roles where there's strategic business uh, alignment or kind of a CISO role or security leadership role or security strategy roles, there's almost none. I mean, I, I literally, in the Northwest, I'll see like maybe five in a year. There's all, virtually no one is hiring this kind of business engaged, business aligned, you know, let's engage the business, let's figure out what's happening, what needs to be protected and how, so that we configure things properly and build them in such a way that they can be easily maintained and not generate tons and tons and tons of issues that we need all these thousands of people for. And finally this week, ISMG ran a virtual summit on identity and access management, bringing together a significant collective of minds focusing on what is probably the biggest topic of interest today, identity management. After the event, I had the opportunity to speak with Bill Harmer, CISO and Chief Evangelist with SecureAuth. Having a background as a banking and payments analyst, I was interested to explore the concept of banks becoming potential custodians of identity, and I asked Bill what he thought on the matter. Here's his response. That's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, I think they could. Um, it would depend on a, how much money they can make off it, because that's what banks do. Uh, they are not altruistic in any way. Um, they uh, almost, I'm thinking like, I'm starting to think like a digital safety deposit box kind of thing. That, that was what I was thinking along the lines of. Again, I know companies like MasterCard have started to dabble in things like uh, identity management with Microsoft, I believe. And then you have things like, obviously, um, Facebook's Libra currency, which hasn't really taken the world by storm at all. But there's an interesting, if you ever read through the white paper, you get a few pages in and it starts talking about Libra being, again, a custodian of self-sovereign identity. So yeah. it's... It seems there is an overlap there I find interesting. I think there's, there's some synergies there that could work. Yeah, and, and that's gonna, there's going to be a lot of historical bias pushed against those ones, right? Like, so you take yeah. your MasterCard, your Visa, your Amex. Um, how many people here have had their card compromised? You know, this month, <laughs> right? Like, right. So, um, and, and when you take something as personal and as uh, critical as your identity, right? Mm -hmm. When... Well, we've gone through this whole thing of, uh, you know, uh, we're going to do uh, identity theft protection. Um, and then you find out that it... But by the pur purveyors of people that are distributing your identity. So it's... <laughs> exactly, right? When you start to look at, sure, they give the companies different names or they buy a company and find out that the, the company that just lost half the U.S.'s uh, social security numbers is doing identity protection. It's... The average user struggles with understanding how that works, right? Right. Um, so uh, Facebook, uh, the reputation that goes with Facebook, right? So depending on who you're listening to or what, you're, or what side you're reading or, or what uh, sites you're on, you're going to hear all the stories about Facebook, about how they don't protect your identity, how they, well, right. they sold it to Cambridge Analytica, right? So who would honestly think in their right mind, this well, is a safe place to put my identity? So right. I think, I think that's why going back and thinking banks, banks haven't historically been horrific with data management. They have had financial issues. Um, and I have a slightly different view of banks being Canadian um, and growing up with Canadian banking systems. There's only what a handful of them in Canada. Exactly. Heavily, heavily regulated. Yeah. Um, there, are, 
are there are rules and regulations on them. Um, and they have been very, very consistent, which is why they didn't have the subpar lending issues that they couldn't get into trouble. They couldn't make bets with people's money and they couldn't uh, end up in the, the disaster that we ended up in the US. So it's, it's really about those. How do you, how do you put forward that, that persona or that understanding of trust in a world where we're talking about zero trust, right? We're preaching zero trust and we're saying, sooner or later, you're gonna have to trust somebody with something. Um, and I think it will be in the solution that comes with it. If, if a bank could come out with a safety deposit box concept, I'm going to go start pushing this with Barlow because my brain's working on it. Two keys, right? It takes two keys to open the identity. It takes two keys to open the box. The bank cannot open your identity ever without your key. Right. Their key, right? It's got to be a two. So if you start going down that route, then yeah, they could be the custodian of that cryptographically secure nugget. Yeah, it is useless until such time as that second key comes in. And in some cases, maybe it's a third key. I don't know. That's it for this week's ISMG security report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.